Built Not Born, episode 42. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is John LaFave. John LaFave is a Canadian-born musician, composer, entrepreneur, lawyer, and advocate for the environment. John has lived an amazing life. John has been everything from a drug dealer to a taxi cab driver to an attorney to a convicted felon and now an advocate for the environment. John likes to say that he never made a legal dollar in his life. As an entrepreneur, John created NetTeller, the PayPal of online gambling. He took the company public, and at its peak, NetTeller was transferring over $14 billion, with a B, in a six-month period to offshore gambling sites. The company went on to have a market cap of over $2 billion on the London Stock Exchange, and then one day it all came crashing down when the FBI raided John's Malibu Beach House. John tells an amazing story how he went from taxicab driver to attorney to multi-millionaire to convicted felon. John and I have a far-ranging discussion. We talk climate change, renewable energy, and the role that government should play in our lives. We also talk about the power of focus and why focusing on the present moment is where your best life is found. One of the best things of doing this podcast, it gives me and hopefully the listeners an opportunity to respect communication where it's possible to have a conversation with someone you don't completely agree with their point of view, but you hear each other out, you exchange a point of view, and you respect each other's people and their opinions. And I hope that's something that went down here. John is a really smart guy. He has a lot of interesting ideas. He really made me think. So I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with John LaFave, author, attorney, entrepreneur, drug dealer, convicted felon, and advocate for a better world. And remember, life is built, not born. John LaFave. Welcome to the show. Pleased to be here. Joe, it's very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I'm a 70-year-old guy that lives on an island west of Vancouver out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and I've repented myself of being a lawyer. I've also repented myself of being a uh, drug dealer. I was arrested when I was 18 for selling LSD and hash to cops that were dressed like hippies. That was in 1969. And I bore the burden of that for, you know, a good part of my life. And then, but it was good training for later on in my life because as when I was about 65, I got arrested for 60 or so uh, by United States Department of Justice for uh, online offenses. But we'll, we'll get to that later. So I'm a retired guy, and arguably I'm retired on, I've never saved a nickel that was legal in my, because <laughs> when, when I started my business, I was 100,000 in debt or so, like, something like that. And, and then my business made all of the money that I have now. So as far as the uh, Department of Justice is concerned, I've never made a nickel that, <laughs> that wasn't illegal. We have a different argument, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> I want to get into all of that from you being a taxi driver to becoming a lawyer 
from being convicted, your role as an activist, all, all the great work you're doing at thesmog.com about exposing climate misinformation. And uh, you want to get into your selling LSD to undercover cops? Let's get into that. That sounds like a fun story. But before we do, I want to go back all the way to the beginning. Where did you grow up? I was born in Ontario, Canada. My dad died in 1955 when I was about three years old in an automobile mishap. My mom raised us, uh, raised the three kids on her own in Calgary, which was her home. So I grew up in Calgary, Alberta. We got the flames from Atlanta. Go flames. Joel Otto, one of my favorite Calgary flames from back in the day. Cool, man. In 1969, I was arrested for uh, selling LSD to cops. And it was so only to say that it's disrespectful to say it that way, because really that was a period in my life when I learned most of the important things I've ever learned. I was 17 when I learned them. It's taken me most of my life and all of my life that yet remains to actually, how shall I say, come live up to those lessons. <laughs> so that was a wonderful experience for me. So I don't speak about it lightly. I, I didn't have any math or science. So I, all I could do is read. So I decided to be a lawyer. <laughs> and I was I practiced law for about 14 years or something like that. And then we started this business. But I think you have some more questions about when I was younger. Your dad was a soldier and he died when you said you were three years old. Take us to say 10 years old. I find that a very formative time in people's lives. If you look back to say the dinner table when you're 10 years old, who was there? What was going on? There's uh, the four of us in my family, my brother and my sister and my mom, and we ate at the table most nights, some nights in front of TV. But my mom was uh, active in the Catholic Church in Calgary, and she had, because widows attract the attentions of priests for uh, for lots of good reasons and some not so good reasons. My mom tells a story, Father Pat's a beautiful guy. I, 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 I learned some of the most important things I learned from Father Pat. But he came and reported one day that Father Robert was talking about my mom behind her back. And she goes, my mom told me just this a couple of years ago before she died. But I said, what was he saying? She said, well, yeah, Pat told me that uh, Father Robert was telling everybody that Louise Lefebvre is good for a scotch. <laughs> so we had Father Pat. Father Dunstan was a Franciscan priest. He'd come around. He was a very beautiful guy, too. So we had a, quite, I had quite a bit of that influence when I was a younger guy. Some of them were very smart guys, and I, I really appreciated having them in my life. How about you look back to your childhood? What's the most powerful memory? Looking back on it now, Joe, the most powerful memories are the ones of my dad. He died when I was about three, but I have a half a dozen or so very clear memories of him. And people always talked about what a wonderful guy he was, always on the upside, always on, always on to make sure everybody in the room feels good and uh, great joker. And I've spent most of my life trying to live up to his reputation in, on those scores and many more. During your childhood, who was your biggest influence? My mom. She introduced me to a lot of interesting thinking. And she told me that the word Catholic, small c Catholic actually means universal. And so we should actually try to be universal and not just, you know, in our own tight little tribe. And she opened me up to some, some large thinking and I, I credit her for that and very grateful for that because my whole view of our existence here is, is pretty large now. And I look forward to getting to that in a little later on in the talk here. Let's fast forward a little bit. So you mentioned that 17... You got arrested selling LSD to uh, uh, undercover cops dressed as hippies. How do you go from talking to the the priests at the Catholic Church to 17 selling LSD? How, how's that transition? It was... It there's, the, there's a lot more in common between uh, church and uh, the hippie thing than you think. I was very fortunate when I was a kid because I fell in with a bunch of guys who were older than me, people who were older than me. 
And they were interested in that whole experience in a way that wouldn't have occurred to me at first. But in treasuring this miracle that resides within us that we call consciousness and then dismiss it was something that I think the Catholic Church should have been doing and was trying to do. And people within it were trying to do that. And of course, that's what my mentors when I was 17 were Bob Dylan and Neil Young and John Lennon. And I'm pretty kind of classic rock guy, but those guys were writing about some very profound thoughts. Bob Dylan was like, he was writing a Bible. You read some of his lyrics from those days, and it was um, astonishing the sorts of things that were drifting through his mind. Dylan is off, just timeless. Great stuff. So take us through. I was just going to say we were very lucky when we were kids to have mentors of that uh, caliber, inspiring us to think about things beyond chicks, cars, and sports. Mm -hmm. So you get arrested. (laughs) What happens then? So take us from there. I, did, I wound up doing eight months in minimum security prison with uh, a bunch of uh, young guys. About 70 or 80 people I knew were arrested. And I wound up in that joint with maybe a dozen of them or 20 or something like that. So it was quite easy on me at that uh, from that perspective because I was quite familiar with a, a crowd of people in there with me. So learned to play bridge, learned to cheat at bridge. It was a wonderful experience. I got a chance to meet uh, some young First Nations guys that were in there for pretty much nothing. And that was a lesson that served me well later on in my You basically got arrested. Do you remember the day you got released from prison, walked out the doors? Yeah, yeah, yeah I sure do. It was pretty was nervous. Like? I was, it was pretty rattling. I was used to, I would I'd walk through, I actually went to a shopping center that day and it was freaky to see all these people. You started that you're thinking that everybody's looking at you and they know you just go to jail and of course they don't. But some, if you ran into somebody you knew, they would know that. And then you had to confront that. And it was, but I had lots of great support and I never, I, I didn't really feel too badly about having been to prison. I felt more of a victim than a uh, perpetrator in a way because every, everything that we were doing then is legal. How- you can, I, I was just reading this morning that mushrooms are, are legal in about a thir- 13 or 14 of the American states and they're legal in a few of the Canadian provinces and pot is definitely legal. And mm-hmm. I don't know anywhere that LSD is legal yet except <laughs> except for in, in research, right? The psychiatric industry is doing a lot of work with those things now to treat PTSD, anxiety that comes from having received end-of-life news, alcoholism, depression. There's magical... The, and I'm, I, I side with the psychiatrists who are working on it, but actually are taking the view that you don't have to feel ill. You don't have to be ill to have the benefits of the psychedelic experience. It's, it's something that's gone back 10,000 years probably. And, and some people are writing now that the whole basis of our mystic mysticism in all the different religions comes from that experience. Have you heard of this book, The Immortality Key? It's Brian Mirror Rescue. It's called... Uh, the secret history of the religion with no name. And he goes back, he's a classicist, and he goes back 10,000 years and he finds clay cups that have uh, remnants in them. And then now they do the science on them. They find out that it was like beer, alcohol, and ergot fungus, which is the basis of LSD. LSD comes from ergot fungus. So they're suspicious now that 10,000 years ago, people were understanding how to use alcohol to denature ergot fungus so it's not poison and have the benefit of it without all of the downside, which was so anyways it goes back a long ways and that's it's a, i don't know how we start this time but we'll, we'll probably keep coming back to it because it's where it all consciousness is where it all winds up actually that's the treasure that's all mm-hmm. at the beginning of my book all's well where there are uh, earth and why I, I let people know that they think my life is interesting because i made so much money joe but the the reality is that the most astonishing thing that befell me fell into my lap no more than it did in everybody's and that is this miracle of life that we don't cherish 
until the, the moments before it's taken from us. And we should live every moment like it's the last three seconds of the Stanley Cup. You know what I mean? Because mm. it might be. <laughs> so true. Now, you don't appreciate so much until it's over. That present moment awareness is such a gift. So you just get released from prison. You're walking around the market thinking everyone's looking at you. All right, take us from there. So you're out of prison. What do you do? I was pushed around a little bit because I would uh, the, the crown. We call you call it the, the the DA on your side of the border, but the prosecution okay. uh, appealed my my sentence. They thought I should get a lot, a lot more than a year, and uh, that was still outstanding. I and part, one of the terms of that my lawyer set upon me was as soon as I got out of uh, jail to go back to university. So I did. I had started university before I was convicted, before I was sentenced. In, um, and so I went back to university and I was uh, on pretty much trying to stay under the radar until this was all settled. And, and I managed to do that. But one night, Pink Floyd came to town and I did some acid, <laughs> went to see Pink Floyd to celebrate getting out of uh, prison. That was, that was a knockout night for sure. <laughs> you go back to university, what do you study? I was just art, art stuff. I was, re, you know, reading English and philosophy and political science and stuff like that. And then I didn't last very long. I, I wound up hanging out in the bar and eventually, I don't know, it was only about a year. I, I went back to university about five years later. I, I, I continued being more or less a hippie, going to bars, um, you know, drinking, smoking up, driving taxi cab, working construction jobs, that sort of thing. So how do you wind up becoming a lawyer? How's that happen? I went to, I decided to go to university and I wasn't sure why, but when I was around 25 or 27 or something like that, but I wasn't satisfied with being a taxi driver anymore, I guess. Don't, don't ask me why. <laughs> it was actually a pretty good life. And then I got pregnant and Catherine and I were going to have a child and I had to um, sort out how I was going to stand up to my responsibilities. And I decided I'd uh, apply to law school. But when I, in those days, Joe, you didn't need an undergrad degree to get into law school and, and Alberta. In Alberta, if you had two years of an undergrad degree and some other special circumstances, they were admitting you to law school. So I had two years of university. And then for one year, I ran for president of the Students Union at the university and won that job and did it for a year. And at the end of those three years, the, the, the U of C, University of Calgary Law School, admitted me. Okay. And then I had not a bad career path anyways, if I wanted to fulfill it. I didn't find it very fulfilling for me, really, but I did that for about 13 years. What, what type of law did you practice? GP stuff down on the corner, real estate, small business. My partner, Jane, was doing all the family and wills stuff. I was criminal defense, which is drunk driving charges, those sorts of, it was small time stuff. You had a successful law career. How did you know it was time to not be a lawyer anymore? I was in and out a few times before I decided that, but I was, I, I, I tried different jobs. I tired of it, I set up new arrangements, working from home, that sort of thing. And that helped for a little while. But eventually I decided I wasn't going to be a lawyer anymore because we started NetTeller, which is the business that, that actually made me rich with illegal money. <laughs> so tell us about that. Tell her how this start and tell us how to unfold. When I was uh, working with Jane uh, later on in her career, she had a client who introduced us to somebody who needed some real estate. And she brought that to me because that was the side that I did. It was a small time commercial real estate deal. 
And that was Steve Lawrence. And Steve and I worked together on on his, he was like a small commercial real estate developer. And I did a lot of stuff for him for a few years. Then he came up with this idea. And the idea was if somebody brought some people gambling online in the early days of the internet, and if somebody brought some responsibility, uh, reliability, professionalism to the money transfer side of that, then that would be a good little business model. Essentially, what we did was we set up a system that was uh, pretty much parallel PayPal but only to service online gambling. And then in 2006, when we were arrested for it, that was three years after we went public. But in in 2006, when we were arrested for it, NetTeller was halfway through a fiscal year and we were uh, tracking to uh, transfer $14 billion, mostly from Americans to offshore gaming sites. That was three years after we went public. We went, when we went public on the London Stock Exchange, Joe, uh, we achieved a market cap of around $2 billion. Whoa. And I had about 27% of that. Did you really? Wow. I so shit what, you not. Oh my. So what was illegal about it? So what, tell us about what, what, how'd you guys get in trouble doing that? You went public. So they knew what you were doing. Obviously you went public, you're on the stock exchange. What was the illegal aspect of that? That was never actually determined, but they, they had a few different arguments. The, there's the, the, the Wire Act, I think it was called, was something about uh, transferring money across state lines for illegal purposes. Of, and it was presumed that gambling was illegal. And to some degree or other, it was illegal in most of the states in those days, except uh, Nevada and New Jersey, of course, who licensed it out. I guess the argument was that if you're uh, aiding and abetting an illegal action, then you're, then you're committing a crime. The, the argument was never resolved, but I'll, let me just tell you it's quickly because it's very interesting. When you have when you make a bet over the internet, the you've had a, a bet is a contract, right? It's a legal contract, and but where does that contract exist? Where does it reside? What the law? Which jurisdiction would govern the uh, execution of that contract? In 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 law, in contract law, the jurisdiction is usually where I'll, I'll go quickly here because it's con- uh, you have offer, you have acceptance, and you have consideration in it to make a contract. That means I, w- I want to buy your bike. You say okay, I'll sell you my bike. I give you ten bucks. As soon as I give you ten bucks, then you've got a legally enforced forcible contract, right? Wherever that money seals the contract where it lands when the money lands that's the jurisdiction so our argument was that they the united states had no jurisdiction because the contracts actually existed in antigua or costa rica or these offshore places malta isle of man these places where the off offshore gambling sites resided that it would be the jurisdiction there and in those jurisdictions but america took the view that it was that they had jurisdiction and my lawyer's advice to me was well you can argue that if you want, but I'll, you'll be you'll be have to phoning the Department of Justice to get money for cornflakes for the next 30 years of your life because because you can argue it and you can win and they'll appeal it. And if you win, you, it'll, it won't feel like a win because it'll be 20 years before it feels like a win. Mm-hmm. Anyways, they, they and then they grind us down, right? It's a whole, they threaten three 20-year offenses and go hard on that and then start bargaining about which lesser offense you'll plead guilty. Uh, Plea bargaining. It's a process that is extortion in every way except one. That is, it's the law enforcement agency that's doing it. And I, you know what? Actually, I agree they should be able to do that. That's what crimes should be enforced in brutally. (laughs) You're doing net teller. You're making your market cap in the billions. You got a big chunk of that. Money's flowing in. Is there some point they give you like a cease and desist or they just come in and arrest you one day? How does that, how does that happen? 
We imagined that they would come and cease and desist us, and they did not. I was on the beach at Malibu. I had two houses on the, in Malibu at the time, on Malibu Beach, Malibu Road. And I was in one of my houses there, and it was the morning after a long weekend. The U.S. Marshals and FBI showed up at my door in three black limousines and then knocked on the door and said, you have to answer the door. And so I was running around the house trying to hide my hash pipe. <laughs> it's a good idea, was, yeah. And I didn't, but that was actually the first, we realized that they were going to go hard on us. But, and I, when, when they showed up my night and I spent that night in jail in Los Angeles. Wow. Yeah. So then they arrest you there. Did you hide the hash pipe? No, I, I yeah, I couldn't find the bag. I was scared shitless about that, but I had. <laughs> Excellent. Well, at least you got the hash pipe. So they take you in for one night. You get, you, are you released? You go out on bail the next day? What's up? No, it took, uh, it took five or six days to get out on bail. The the beef was uh, that the locus of the charge <laughs> was New York, yeah, Southern District in New York. It was, and uh, so they they load you into I think they call it what's it called prison air or something like that, convict con air. That's what they call it. But there's big white jets out at Victorville, east of Los Angeles, and they have no markings on them. They just got the tail number, and they're all filled with guys in uh, shackles. Those are handcuffs with a chain around your chest. Mm-hmm. You have your shackles, and you got leg irons on, like the la- ankle handcuffs. And they're all everybody's on these planes wearing shackles. And the ladies up at the front saying, "In the event of an emergency, follow instructions." <laughs> <laughs> think about that for a minute. <laughs> I think there was a Nicolas Cage movie on that back in the day. I think there's a yeah. Connie or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, so anyways, they shipped me out of Los Angeles into Oklahoma City, which is the hub for Con Air, uh, to take me to New York to answer my charges in New York. And then my lawyer went to court to try to bail me out, but I wasn't in MDCLA anymore and they didn't know where I was. And he had. it took him five days to chase me down. So I was. he bailed me out from Oklahoma City. And then one day I was flying one way in shackles and leg irons with Ritz with peanut butter. That was our sandwich. That was (laughs) Ritz with peanut butter. Five days later, I was flying the other way with champagne and orange juice and in the front row with my Century City lawyer. (laughs) Wow. It's amazing how quick life turns. You. It was startling. So what happens there? Is it net teller done from there or do you keep going or what, what happens there? Then, and then 10 or 12 days later, I guess it was, then they, Vince and I flew to New York and we answered the charges there. And that's when they arranged the bail and I paid $5 million bail and it was released. What happens on the trial? So the trial comes up, you're out on bail. What happens? I'm out on bail, but uh, I was uh, there, there actually never was a trial. We eventually we plea bargained and, okay. and it led to uh, a sentencing hearing in Manhattan. And then at that sentencing hearing, I was sentenced to 45 days in jail. We paid uh, net teller, myself and my partner together paid $240 million forfeiture. I paid 40, my partner paid 60 and the company paid 140 million. We dumped a quarter of a billion dollars at the, uh, the Department of Treasury in, in this settlement. And then in those days, the the rack thing was going on. And I was reading that they are spending two and a half billion dollars a week in Iraq. And I, and I calculated, I don't know how my math was, but I calculated that our quarter of a billion dollars would get them through to coffee time Monday morning. <laughs> so you cover the coffee Monday morning in Iraq. You cover the first couple of hours. Well, thank you for that. What's your next move there? So you basically paid bail. Did you actually do another 45 days? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did 45 days in the same joint in Manhattan that Jeffrey Epstein found, woke up one morning and found out he had committed suicide. Okay. (laughs) Did you really? 
What year is this, yeah. roughly? What year, what year is this? 2011. So you do 45 days there. What's that compared to the LA jail? Compare the, compare the jails from coast to coast. Which one would you rather be in? Uh, New York. New York one? How- yeah. In New York, all the race is mixed. Everybody worked together. When I was in LA, there was a table for white guys, table for black guys. One day I took my tray over to, to the table with the black guys and said, can I sit here for lunch? The guy looked up and he goes, free country. <laughs> and they all tried to turn their shoulders like this. And, I, and later on, I found out I might've gotten beaten up for that in Los Angeles. But in the prison system that I witnessed in, in Los Angeles, it was all very racialized. In New York City, everybody didn't give a care. Okay. So that made it a lot more interesting to me. You get out of, you spend, you serve your 45 day time in Manhattan. What's your next move from there? Then it was come back to Canada and take it easy. But Joe, that was after six years of five years of being out on bail and getting urine tested, started out weekly and then eventually monthly and then eventually every six months. But during those six years, I spent the first two years on Malibu Beach in one of my houses and sold one and kept one. And then they finally let me uh, sojourn to Canada, but I had to come back every month to test, eventually every six months. And eventually during those six years, I moved back to Canada. I gave up living in Los Angeles, uh, in Malibu. But during that time, between the time that I was convicted and sentenced, which was about five years, I made two double CDs of my own music recording in Los Angeles. One was in Hollywood at Oceanway Studios, and the other one was in West West LA at Village Recording, and with some of the greatest players in in, in the world. And it was, it's a really good way to keep your mind off going to jail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was also, it was a, it was just a a chance of a lifetime. It's a miracle to be able to play with guys of that caliber. And I was so grateful to be able to. Who did uh, you play yeah. with? Any any notable names you want to share? Hutchison is a bass player from for Bonnie Raitt and a bunch of other guys. Jim Keltner. If you were Bob Dylan, Jeff Lynn, Roy Orbison, George Harrison, and the Traveling Wilburys. Wow. If you were that band, you could have any drummer you wanted, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they got Jim Keltner. All the drummers in the world know who Keltner is. Greg Lease was a pedal steel guitar player that plays for just about everybody in the studio. Dean Parks has been on Michael Jackson's records and all over the place. Billy Payne was in a band called, he's a keyboard player. He was in a band called Little Feet, which is a really great band. And so anyways, I got to play with these guys and uh, watch them play and watch them treat my music and watch them treat me with respect. Like I'm just a normal guy. I feel like I'm in a room with a bunch of gods, really. And they, my producer, Brian Ahern said, John, they're just normal guys. Treat them like normal guys. If you want to treat them, you're a fan. It'll be different, but Mm -hmm. you you can appreciate them without acting. Yeah. Treat them like normal people. That That goes a long way. How about? It's actually exactly the same for the prisoners. Okay. Treat them like normal people. You show them respect and you demand respect back. And if you do that, you'll, you'll be good. Yeah, you know what? The best, this came up on another, a couple of previous episodes uh, of the podcast. This, that trust and respect aspect comes up in different, in different fields, medicine, and sure. law, and jujitsu, and uh, military. If you want respect or you want trust, you have to give it first. You don't ask yeah. for it. You don't demand it, right? You have to exactly. give it first. You give what you need to get. Correct. What? If you want attention, what I find is the best attention I get from people is the attention I get from them when I pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. So you know, true. when I pay, you know, when I, when I pay attention to you, Joe, you really like it. 
<laughs> sure, it's human being. It's being a human being. Absolutely, it's like attention. It's like trust. Yeah, attention, trust, and respect. You give yep. it to get it, and you don't give it, you probably don't get any of those three. I'm not going to argue with you, but I am going to say you give it because they deserve it. Incidentally, okay. you get it. Okay, gotcha. That's fair. No, you give it because they deserve <laughs> it, and then, but then by accident, it comes back to you. Like yeah, instantly. It's like magic. <laughs> no, really good. It's a nice, good, cool magic trick. How about also too? I see in your profile two cool books: "Good with Money" and "All's Well." How did you? When did you decide to write those things? How did you get into? How did you had a book in you, and how did you? How they come about? I started writing in around 2015 or so a project. I've been writing all my life a little bit, but and it was going to be autobiographical. Everybody kept telling me, "John, your story is so exciting, you should write it." And I started writing it, and I got tired of it quite quickly, actually. Like I say in my book, all's well. I, I got I tired quite quickly of writing sentences to start with I and end with me. And I decided if I'm going to write a book, I might, write, might as well write a book about something that's really important. And that was uh, my my views of where we are as a species, what our place is in the universe, how far we've come, how far we have yet to come, what our chances are, what are the principles that we should adopt to go there. It's it's actually gone. So it, that sounds pretty boring when I describe it that way that I just did. But it's um, it's a little bit like Hunter S. Thompson in places. <laughs> it's just to keep it interesting, but it's about it's about our the, the miracle that we are is one of the conclusions I come to is that there are probably about ten trillion more of us in the universe, and for us to think that we're alone here is really a, a stretch. One of the one of the things I say is that if we are this conscious being, these beings that can dream and then take those dreams and make them real, we can write ninth symphonies and build ships that go up in the air with four hundred people in them and land safely, and we can do all that stuff. If we're the only ones in the hundreds and hundreds of trillions of stars there are in the universe, then that's a fucking miracle, Joe. Mm -hmm. And it's high time we started to act like it. Every one of us is a miracle beyond all imagination. Mm -hmm. Actually, though, I think it's unlikely. I think we're not that rare, but we're still really rare. Mm -hmm. Beings that have that can dream dreams and then can figure out how to bring them into reality. We another way that I like to look at it is if it weren't for us, this universe that we've just learned about in the last hundred years, it's so incredibly far reaching and astonishing and just completely magnificent in so many astonishing ways. If it weren't for us, Joe, it would be astonishing, but for no one. Mm-hmm. We are the, the universe's vessels of astonishment. We are the universe's vessels of consciousness. We're the universe's vessels of love. And we are people that say, you try to say, some people try to say that we can't, we, we're un, it's unfair for us to distinguish ourselves from other animals, like the orca whales and the whatever, because we're all living beings, right? Mm-hmm. But there is one difference, Joe. We can fix their broken leg. Mm-hmm. They can't fix ours. Of all those other things that we can do, be astonished to give love, all of those things that we can do, one of the most beautiful things that we can do is help. Yep. And because we can, we should. Because Let me say something else about that. We're all the same. My book, All's Well, Where Thou Art Earth, and Why, ends with the epilogue. And it's an, the epilogue is a rewriting of the uh, Declaration of Independence. 
And I know that's not an original idea, but I rewrote it to cover everybody because it should cover everybody. You and I have this amazing capacity that this thing in us that dreams at night with almost infinite creativity and imagination and poetry and all of these deep gripping feelings, that part of us that dreams at night, it doesn't go asleep when we wake up in the daytime. You know what it does? It cries all day at what we waste all of that on. <laughs> so I got to pay, write my tax, take the letter down, lick a stamp, put it in a mailbox. We could, we have to do those things. They're practical and we should be doing them. But that part of us, that miraculous part of us does not go to sleep in the daytime. It's with us all day long. Mm-hmm. And so what I think we should you know, recognize is that miraculous capacity exists in all of us the same. You and I and the starving lady in Somalia whose infant is dying at her dust-laden breast, we all have the same capacity to dream and we have the same capacity for disappointment. Mm -hmm. And this freedom that we enjoy in our such privileged society, we're so deeply privileged in our society. I'm super privileged, but everybody here is privileged. I'm going to say 80% of the people in North America are super privileged. And there, we have that privilege because it, it comes from freedom. It's one of the things that comes from freedom is all, all these benefits. But you know what? Since we were kids, people told us that freedom comes at a cost. And, the, and we used to think it was you go to war and you fight for freedom and you give your life. I'm not impressed by that any longer. You know why? Because only one in 200,000 of us ever has to pay that price. Everybody else gets it for free. That doesn't make sense. Freedom has responsibility and those responsibilities uh, need to be accepted to us by us every day or else we haven't earned our freedom we've just here's what i like to say the duty of freedom i think is to strive every day to assure that those who are less fortunate than us get it too or are on a path to get it too mm-hmm. everybody we're all the same us and the lady in Somalia, we're all, we're all the same. And if those who are pleased with the benefits of freedom, but disregard the responsibilities of it and disregard what people who are less fortunate in the freedom department must endure, have not earned their freedom. They've merely taken liberties. Mm-hmm. I like the, the one quote you just said, we're all the same. Getting back to your love of music, I'm a U2 guy. And Bono, one of the concerts I was at, he yells, there is no them, there is only us. That was like a refrain he would say during the concert. There's no them, only us. So it gets to the point you're saying, we're, we're all the same, all in this together. We should, we should deeply appreciate all of us together. Even the Trump followers, you got to love those guys. What? Two thirds of those guys are victims of misinformation. Right. And the other third of them are people who are struggling to do their job the best they can. And they think the best they can do for republicanism is support this powerful leader who made them feel rejuvenated. We, we, we have a duty to, first of all, speak the truth to them. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh, he is, and his, his main, one of his main things is speak the truth, but not to punish. His writing, so have, I, I just discovered him about a year ago and his writing, uh, his writing is Really makes you think. He really. Yeah, he's a super bright guy, but the but when he says speak the truth, but not to punish, he doesn't mean speak the truth if you want to, but when you do, not to punish. No, mm-hmm. speak the truth, but not to punish. Mm-hmm. So 
we need to speak to our Republican buddies and bring them. I hope I'm not stepping on anybody's toes here, Joe. It's all, it's all good. Hey, no, it's, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Moving on to desmog.com, that you're the co-founder, oh, yeah. exposing climate misinformation. How did that come about? My partner in that is uh, Jim Hogan, and he's become a very influential public relations guy in Canada, on the west coast of Canada. And we had we had a few different things going on together, but the he came up with this idea in around 2004. Have you heard of these things called blogs? I said, I think I heard the word. It's meaningless to me. What is, what's a blog? He says, what's, you know, it's your, your own newscast. You just do it. And I said, why the hell would anybody watch that? And he says, I don't know, but they do. <laughs> So we should start a blog about climate misinformation because he was something he was very interested in. And so he and I decided that we would see what we could do about doing this. It's about pulling to, pulling down the pants on the guys that are dishing up the misinformation about climate science. The main element of it was this. Never talk climate science with a climate science denier. The reason you don't is because they don't care about the science. Climate science deniers really only want one thing, and that is to raise doubt about climate science. The only thing you should talk to a climate science denier about is where who's paying them. The scientists that we were working with on, on those days were very grateful for that because they were wasting their life arguing science with, with climate science deniers who had no intention at all of listening. <laughs> and so that's what we did. And so we started to disclose. One of the first things we did actually was find out how much money Exxon was paying to uh, these climate science deniers, the famous ones of the day, and disclosed that. And when we found that out, they took the stuff down off their website. Looking at the climate now, the global warming, What's some of the biggest misinformations out there? If you had to clear up, what, if you had to clear up two points on climate misinformation to the general public, what would you clear up? We can't go on burning fossil fuel. Even natural gas would be good if you didn't, if it, if it didn't, uh, if the production of natural gas didn't leak methane into the atmosphere all the time. But it's completely unregulated, and methane is twenty-seven times more powerful a greenhouse gas than CO two is. Now, it dissipates in the atmosphere quite a bit more quickly. CO2 stays in the atmosphere for, you know, basically forever, a thousand years when you put it up there until we figure out a way to take it out. But methane is way more powerful. So, and we can't go on using even natural gas. The future is going to be renewable energy. And the sooner we make the change, the smarter we're going to be. Renewable energy. You always hear wind, sun. What, what's what, what's the most tidal? What, what else? I'm sorry. Tidal. Okay. What's yeah. the m- most realistic use of renewable energy? Say for a country like America that has so much power needs, so much energy needs. What, what, Are you be, which process of you renewable energy? Yeah, what, you mean? Is it all, all the above, or is it just yeah, one? It's all for sure. It's all the above. Some places are windy, and some places have you know waves that go up and down. Mm-hmm. Have you seen those things? Now they float them on the water like a huge sausage about a submarine, and they have these poles that go up and down, and on top are floats, and the waves go like this, and the f- <laughs> and the floats go, and and they, they like turn petals, and they turn and generate as long as there's waves on the ocean. The electricity comes in. We're going to discover a lot of different things about how to produce um, electricity. That one of the biggest problems with is uh, energy storage. We've got those places east of Los Angeles, the big wind farms. Well, what happens when the wind's blowing, but it's two in the morning and you don't need the power? Yeah. And now they're doing something really smart at Boulder Dam. What they're doing is they're building a way to pump water from the bottom of the dam, the river, 
back up into the reservoir. So whenever you've got all these wind farms going, whenever the wind is blowing, but the uh, but it's not lots of traffic on the mains on the lines, they just use that excess power to pump water back up into the reservoir, and then that's a, it's like a battery. It's a water battery. Wow. From your perspective, how far are we away? If you just said, you know what, we never want to burn a fossil fuel again, realistically, how many years out, decades out are we're like cars, like uh, like power grids, everything runs on a renewable energy? I think we could probably achieve it in about 25 or 30 years, Okay, but I don't think we have to. How so? Right? If we cut fossil fuel consumption by 85%, it's no problem. And then there's always going to be a guy who wants to put gasoline as his alpha or whatever, his 49 Chev truck. And he should be able to, right? But he should pay the proper price for it, the true cost. It, fossil fuels should, if, if fossil fuels were charged out to us at their true cost, we wouldn't buy them anymore because they cost too much. But what I mean by the true cost is the cost of repairing all of the climate damage that it does. Mm -hmm. But gasoline should probably not be two bucks or three bucks a gallon, whatever it is. It should probably be 50 bucks a gallon. <laughs> and I, I'm sorry to say it, but that means only rich guys can use internal combustion engines. But if pe you know what, Joe, if people do what I think people should do, everybody's going to be rich enough to do that. Everybody. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. But anyways, back to your question. I think the renewables are going to come on. I think the, the biggest indicators, the, the, that's the way the future is going to be. And people just have to wake up to it. We have to grow up to it. We're all going to be dead. You're a lot younger than I am, but I'm 70. My, my granddaughter is, Ida is six. And she's going to be, by the time she's uh, your age, most people won't be using gasoline anymore. And I, I think if we're smart, not if we're smart, if we're wise, the sooner we do that, the, the less expensive it's going to be. Mm -hmm. what, what other misinformation do you think needs to get cleaned up regarding climate change or climate protecting the environment? I'm going to say, I'm going to, go, I'm going to open up to something a little bit more general, if, if you don't mind, Joe, because yeah. I think this is the more bigger, more important than climate change. Yeah. When people say government can't do anything, mm -hmm. and when they stick their money in our pocket, that's theft, that is misinformation. Our constitutional democratic institutions are the greatest institutions ever invented for the governance of people. And the problem isn't with the institutions. The problem is the people that we let take over the office. We have to get out and we have to vote and we have to vote for people who have larger interests than their selfish interests. Mm -hmm. Constitutional democracy has created the two powers that the selfish wealthy fear the most. Those are the powers to tax and the powers to regulate. Mm -hmm. The proof of how much they fear them is how much money they spend to keep those levers unto themselves. But we should be encouraging kids to grasp a hold of the powers to tax and the powers to regulate and use them properly. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have, and just tell the selfish wealthy, I'm sorry, no. But you know what, Joe? Those guys can afford their 2% above 100 million. Mm -hmm. They can afford it. They won't even notice. I'm talking about the Elizabeth Warren tax proposal sort of thing, taxing wealth. It's the people who have got wealthy, including me, I get to talk because I, I was one of these rich guys too, or I still am. But people who get wealthy in a system that they're not paying for, they're not paying for. The security systems like the SEC and all that, the financial systems, the banks, hospitals, education, all of the educated people that they have, they, the roads that they drive on to deliver their goods, all of these things are paid for by the public and, and they should come at a cost. 
they have that money and they have it securely. They can count on that money being theirs next week, which is not something that you can say in Russia or China or anywhere else. Mm. And that should come at a cost. And that cost is not huge. It's about 2%. But if we take that 2% from the wealthy, Joe, what we're going to wind up doing, it's not taking it from them because it's ours. They owe us the fee for us protecting their money. But if we did that and used it for what I think we should use it for, and that's to develop our human resources in everybody, then wealth will be so profuse or coming from that that they'll make their 2% back and five times more that maybe they'll make it back. So they shouldn't be whining at all. They're whining about their own, they're, they're, what the, the whining of these wealthy guys and I'm one of them. So I get to talk and I, and I get to pull down the pants on the wealthy because I'm one of them. And they're, you guys, you're working against yourself. You're swimming upstream. Share your money. You'll get richer. It's a miraculous thing. It's that sure. simple. Switching gears here a bit, just so the listeners can get to know you a little bit more as a person. With all the stuff going on, everything from activist to lawyer to in jail to running net teller to author, when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? SFA. What, what is SFA? I want to, can I say it out loud? Sweet fuck all. That part of us that dreams at night that stays awake in the daytime. Mm -hmm. The reason we don't experience it in the daytime is because these things that drift into our minds, all of the things, well, I got to go grocery shopping. Oh, I got to, I got Joe on a podcast tomorrow morning. I got to get ready for Joe and all these things. And I think what we need to do is we, we need to, practice skilled management of our attention. And what, and what, I, what I mean by that is when these things just come into our mind, we're in the habit of dealing with them right now. And we should not. What we need to do is understand that for half an hour each day, we should treat all of those things for what they are. They are guests who didn't phone first before they came and knocked on the door. There's their clients that don't have an appointment. Yeah. <laughs> just for half an hour, set them aside, yeah. sit, be peaceful and Watch what's going on and listen and feel what it's like to be alive in the moment and see what comes up. And then that part of us that dreams at night is awakened within us again. And we it's not awakened. It's always there. We're starting to pay attention to it now. Mm -hmm. And almost always when I do that, something really brilliant comes to me. Like, John, just go change the frame on that, whatever it is, yeah. solutions to problems. So sit quietly and wait to see the miracles that come up. One of my favorite authors is Ryan Holiday. And one of his latest books is called Stillness is the Key. And uh, he mentions that in that stillness, that's where your best ideas come. That's where revelations come. But you have to force that. You said those uninvited guests, you got to say for a half hour, I don't care how busy I am today or 20 minutes or whatever it is, you find that time at some point in your day that you take 10, 15 minutes and just clear your head and your best ideas come out. It's like, oh, I got to fix that picture or I got to call my mom or I have to do X. And that doesn't come when you're just busy, like going to the mailbox, going to the dry clean or stopping at the bank and checking your email and mindlessly going on social media for the third time that day. And all those great ideas that aren't there when you can't focus on the present moment. I'm only going to speak about one nuance and I'll try to do it quickly. Right, yeah. the, the, Zen, the Zen, what should I do to become enlightened master? And he'll say, chop wood and draw water. But so some of the things we do free us from all of these things. What am I doing right now? Well, I'm chopping wood. I don't have any time for that. That's good. 
Go chop water, go swimming, go fishing, go sit by the water. Just do something that assists us in realizing that this moment is ours for a reason. Mm-hmm. I think that's why guys like golf so much. I used to golf all the time until I bought a windsurfer. You get out on a golf course and you go, guys don't want to talk about stuff. They said, oh, sorry, I'm golfing right now. That's what we should do. Sorry, I'm busy. What are you doing? Yeah. Nothing. You're don't just do something. Head. Sit there. Yeah, that's great advice. What book influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book? This is going to sound snobby. My favorite book is James Joyce Ulysses. Mm-hmm. because he broke things wide open with that. It's a, it's not as difficult a book to read as everybody thinks. And it's and it, it demonstrates a whole new vision about what literature can be. And I think he democratized literature. He made it so that what happens in the most normal mind is a miracle to behold. Mm-hmm. So that was a very beautiful thing. I also liked... There's a guy named Roberto Bolaños who died five years ago, and he wrote a book called 2666, which is actually five novels in one. But uh, go to Amazon, if it doesn't smell too bad to you, and read the reviews of 2666. 2666. And who's the author? Roberto Bolaño. Okay, cool. Well, He's a Chilean that. guy that died in Mexico. He was a heroin addict and an alcoholic. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. How about when you look back at everything you've done in your life from all the different roles and the different, say, actors you played in your life, just so many different phases, so much interesting stuff you've done. As you look back, what accomplishment are you most proud of? Showing up on Joe's show. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I, I mean that. It's great. I had to do some work to get here. I had to get up this morning and get my head together. It's being able to, my greatest accomplishment, I think, is learning to respect communication with other uh, people of similar spirit, getting along, learning how to get along. It's taken me, I'm 70 years old and learning how to get along has taken me 75 years. That's fair, man. That's not, it's great, great awareness. How about as you look out to 2022, the new year, what's the most exciting project you're working on? I'm going to write another book. It's going to be all as well as uh, Where the Earth and Why is a, a book about the principles that we should adopt going forward if we want to advance civilization. And there's, incidentally, they're, they're the principles that Thomas Jefferson wrote in the uh, Declaration, among a few other nuances. But I have a very positive out- outlook about what's going on around us right now. I think there are three things in our society that are very important that they're going to force us into a very important choice. Those things, they all start with C. One of them is climate. And the other one is, I call it, I'll call it community or, or constitution. There's a constitutional crisis in America. I don't have to tell you about it, but all of these things are, are happening and they're forcing us to realize that actually we are one community on planet Earth. And we have to come together and start to behave. In certain ways, it will be murder for us if we do not mm-hmm. realize that we are one community. And so I think that particularly climate and, and contagion are going to take us there. But we have the same governance problem the whole world over. It expresses itself differently. But we have to make sure that governance authority doesn't fall into the hands of the selfish wealthy. We have to take authority back from the hands of the selfish wealthy so that we can develop all the human resources on earth, everybody. And and when we do, Joe, we will have created Eden. And not only will we have earned it, we we will have, it will be us that brought it here, not some God, us. We can make earth Eden. 
All we have to do is realize that everybody, including that lady in Somalia, is entitled to some basic basic rights. I set them out in my book. Thanks for sharing that. Here's a fun question. If you could spend a day with any historical figure, alive or dead, who would it be? Boy, isn't that something? Any historical figure. I think it would be Jesus of Nazareth to find out what that guy actually thought. Mm-hmm. But Glenn, do you know who Glennon Doyle is? Glennon Doyle sums up. She, she's married to uh, Gabby Wambach. Is that her name? The lady that ran your soccer league? Your, uh, yeah, women's soccer. Gabby's married to, to, anyways, what she says is Jesus was a person who sought out the ones that religion rejected and the ones that power oppressed. And he went to live with them. And if you want to be a Christian, go do that. I think she's right. I think that's what he did. But he was a guy, I think, I've repented myself of being a Catholic, but there are some things that have stuck with me. And one of them is when somebody's deepest commitment is to honor and love all others. I think that's a lesson that we can embrace no matter what. I'd I'd like to hang out with him for an afternoon, maybe do some mushrooms. (laughs) Doing mushrooms (laughs) with Jesus would be uh, definitely an interesting day. Yeah. How about two more questions? That's really cool. Two more questions. We started off talking about that dinner table when you were 10 years old with your mom and your siblings. If you could go back and talk to your family around that dinner table when you were 10 years old, what would you want to tell them? We're on the right track. We're on the right track. We just have to encourage our children to do the best they can. We're on the right Nate, track. The human, the human species will unfold in a miraculous way. Just uh, we have to seize power back from the selfish wealthy and encourage our children to take governance up. Mm-hmm. Last question. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Be still yet. Still be still, but yet still be. Be still, yet still be. Wow. It's be awake. Be awake. Shut up and be awake for a minute, dude. Wow. <laughs> that is I think that is about as good a spot as any to end. John Lefave, I'd like to thank you for your time. It's been an honor to speak with you. Phenomenal stories. Wow. Um, wow. If people were looking for you, and the smog and everything you got going on, your books online, where can they find you? Uh, my name's not easy to spell, so you got to spell it right on your site. Okay. But you folks just have to go to johnlefave.com. I will put that in the show notes. The books are good with money, all's well in the upcoming. What's the next one called? Uh, it's uh, yet to be announced. Yet, yet to be announced. And we got desmog.com for uh, the latest in climate information and disinformation. If anybody's on Facebook, I'm an old-fashioned guy. I'm still on Facebook. But I have a, a page there, and it's called Thoughtful Species. Okay. And on Thoughtful Species, we go, we go, we kick some of this stuff around. Thoughtful Species at Facebook. I will put all of this in the show notes. But John Lefebvre, I'd like to thank you for joining us. And uh, interesting stories. Thanks for sharing your story, man. Fascinating stuff. Great to meet you, Joe. Thanks for having me. Same to you.